Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 18, Deuteronomy chapter 14. Uh, last week, we ended partway through Deuteronomy chapter 14. And we spent most of our time discussing the God principle of the purpose for a human will. And during that discussion, I told you that the purpose for the human will is to make moral choices. And that a moral choice is but to choose between obedience and disobedience to God's written laws and commands as directed by the Holy Spirit. Now, everything that falls outside of moral choice is but personal preference. And preferences are not governed, generally speaking, by God's laws and commands. A preference is something like choosing between planting red roses and yellow roses or going to a, a church or synagogue service at 9 instead of 11. Right? Or, or choosing to own an NIV Bible in case of a instead of a, 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 a complete Jewish Bible, for instance. Right. Now, none of these preferences involves sin. But moral choices always do. The conclusion was that, as St. Paul said, without law, there can be no sin. Therefore, the law must continue to exist, just as Yeshua says it does. Otherwise, how would we have any moral choices to make? In the case of Adam and Eve and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we see that if there were no rules or boundaries, there was no moral choices for them to make. Sin is the act of making a moral choice that is against God, such as directly violating his scriptural laws and commands. And if, as it was for Adam and Eve before that first law was given to them, the law against eating that particular fruit, if mankind has no rules, then sinning becomes an impossibility. So why would we need to be saved from sins that can't even be committed? Now, I also comment, commented that we should take note that the very first law God ever created for mankind concerned food. Eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So food is what chapter 14 talks about. The Lord originally used food to demonstrate that he makes distinctions. He divides and he separates. The Lord defines boundaries for mankind. He prohibits and he permits. Dividing and separating is perhaps the primary characteristic activity of God. And it shows us what he approves and disapproves of. I hope you heard what I just said. Probably God's most visible and preeminent activity is dividing and separating. The activity that he seems to use so prevalently to achieve his goals is division and separation. 
The act of salvation by means of our Messiah is precisely dividing and separating because some will gain salvation, others won't, according to a line in the, a line in the sand that the Lord has drawn. Those who choose to stand on one side of that line gain salvation and eternal life. Those on the other side do not. God began dividing and separating when he divided dry land from the waters of the seas. When he divided night from day. When he divided good from evil. One could say he also divided the sexes, male from female. He eventually divided and separated mankind into tribes and then nations. Then he divided and separated the nation of Israel as a set-apart nation away from all the others. Then he divided and separated the tribe of Levi away from the other tribes of Israel, divided them even further into priests and non-priests. But the Lord also divided things up in other ways. And food is one of those ways. He divided food up into the suitable and the unsuitable. The ritually clean and unclean. The acceptable and the unacceptable. Before we reread the food section of Deuteronomy 14, let me state something that I'm unequivocal and unyielding about. The separation he makes between clean and unclean items for eating has nothing to do with any human concept of rational, logical, or hygienic reasons. That dietary health might enter the equation in certain instances is completely secondary. And it is absolutely nothing that we ought point to as the method that the Lord used to create division between the clean and unclean foods. In fact, this notion entertained today by Jews and by a growing number of Christians that the foods listed as clean are inherently healthier than the list of unclean foods just doesn't bear itself out in reality. That is not to say that in eating a biblically kosher diet that there are not health blessings bestowed upon us in a spiritual and supernatural way as a divine blessing due to our obedience to the word of God. But the foods themselves don't all necessarily have direct inherent health benefit and others direct inherent health negatives, although it's certainly possible that some might. The Japanese, for instance are as equally famous for eating seafoods that are specifically banned as unclean as they are for living extraordinarily healthy and long lives. The Chinese and many other cultures eat animals that have paws. Something specifically excluded as food. And there is no evidence that they live shorter lives or less healthy lives than anybody else. The idea that the list of biblically clean foods was based totally on hygiene and health is not correct. That notion actually came from Jewish writers of the Middle Ages, many of whom had become famous physicians. And it has been proven to have not a lot of basis. 
Rather, the Lord states emphatically that the only reason for requiring Israel to eat kosher is that Israel is holy. And following God's dietary laws is one of the components of their maintaining their holiness when accomplished within the proper context of trusting and loving God. We will find sections of the Old Testament whereby some of the Canaanites actually decide to obey some of Israel's food laws and even other laws concerning the care and maintenance of the field used for crops because they saw a certain value and advantage to it. But they didn't trust God. So what was holy for Israel was simply mimicking the holy and was thus merely common for them. Now by way of example, the Canaanites certainly may have gained a physical advantage by letting their fields rest every seven years if they hadn't done so before. But they did not gain the blessings of holiness from God or the things that come with that simply by obeying some of those commandments in a mechanical fashion. By dividing and separating food into clean and unclean, the Lord is giving us yet another physical and visible demonstration of a heavenly spiritual principle. He declares what is holy for his own mysterious reasons. And all else is not. Yet holy things are intended only for holy people. Therefore, it follows that a set-apart people should eat only food that has been set apart and declared clean, meaning acceptable to the Lord. I know that many of you have finally accepted this principle that the, that, that the holiness is defined, is defined by God alone. And yet I can tell you that others have come to me still not quite understanding the point I'm making here. And this is the reason I bring it up again and again. Nothing and no one but the Lord has self-created holiness. Every procedure, ritual, animal, instrument, object, or law that God deems to be holy is holy only because He deems it. And it maintains that holiness only when it's used in the proper context. You, as a disciple of Yeshua, are holy only because God has made a determination to give you a holy status. And you accepted it. Praise be to the Lord. And that determination is that if you demonstrate your trust in Him by means of faith in His Son, then He will consider your sins paid for your relationship with him restored and he will give you eternal life. Could the Lord maybe have chosen another way 
to determine holy status? I imagine he could have. Given time, we could probably all think of a number of interesting ways we could suggest to God maybe to employ as the criteria for a man to be saved. But you know, he didn't. Therefore, one way is holy, another way is not. And we're not given the option to choose other ways. No matter how logical or tolerant or traditional or comfortable they might seem to us. Let's reread Deuteronomy chapter 14 starting in verse 3 and uh, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Deuteronomy 14. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 213, 213. You're not to eat anything disgusting. Okay. The animals of which you may eat are ox, sheep, goat, deer, gazelle, roebuck, ibex, antelope, oryx, mountain sheep. Any animal that has a separate hoof that is completely divided and also chews the cud, these animals you may eat. But you are not to eat those that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof. For example, the camel, the hare, the coney are unclean for you because they chew the cud but they don't have a separate hoof. While the pig's unclean for you, because although it has a separate hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. You're not to eat meat from these or even touch their carcasses. Of all that lives in the water, you may eat these. Anything in the water that has fins and scales, these you may eat. Whatever lacks fins and scales, you're not to eat. It's unclean for you. You may eat any kind, any clean bird. But these you're not to eat. Eagles, vultures, ospreys, kites, any kind of buzzard, any kind of raven, Ostriches, screech owls, seagulls, any kind of hawk, little owls, great owls, horned owls, pelicans, barn owls, cormorants, storks, any kind of heron, hoopoe, and bat. All winged swarming creatures are unclean for you. They're not to be eaten. But all clean flying creatures you may eat. You're not to eat any animal that dies naturally. Although you may let a stranger staying with you eat it. (laughs) You can sell it to a foreigner. (laughs) Because you are a holy people for Adonai, your God. You're not to boil a young animal in its mother's milk. Every year you must take one-tenth of everything your seed produces in the field and eat it in the presence of Adonai, your God, in the place where he chooses to have his name live, you will eat the tenth of your grain, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your cattle and sheep so that you will learn to fear Adonai your God always. But if the distance is too great for you so that you are unable to transport it because the place where Adonai chooses to put his name is just too far away from you, then when Adonai your God prospers you, you're to convert it into money. Take the money with you. Go to the place which Adonai your God will choose and exchange the money for anything you want. Cattle, sheep, wine, other intoxicating liquor, anything you please and you're to eat there in the presence of Adonai your God and enjoy yourselves, you and your household. But don't neglect the Levite staying with you because he has no share or inheritance like yours. 
At the end of every three years, you're to take all the tenths of your produce from that year and store it in your towns. Then the Levites, because he has no share or inheritance like yours, along with the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow living in your towns, they will come and eat and be satisfied, so that Adonai your God will bless you in everything your hands produce. Now, as we've covered all this in detail in our study of Leviticus, we'll only lightly touch on the matter of food here in Deuteronomy. And if you need a refresher, I suggest you refer to some of Torah class's recorded lessons. Verse 3 sets the tone for what follows as well as establishing a general rule. No Hebrews to eat anything to eat anything disgusting, all right, or better, abominable. In Hebrew, the word is toiva. And in English, another good choice of words might be aberrant. The idea is that to eat things that the Lord has not set apart as legitimate food is among the most displeasing things that anybody can do before God. Toiva is a very strong Hebrew term reserved for things that are especially unclean or unholy or unlawful and have absolutely no place in the life of one who calls their God the God of Israel. But don't be confused. This general rule of toiva is not separate. It's not different from the list of unclean animals the Lord is pronouncing in the next few verses. Rather, these unclean animals are toiva, aberrant to the Lord when used as food by Israel. Now allow me to remind you of another interesting principle that the rabbis have been so good to observe. That which can technically be eaten and digested by a human doesn't make it a legitimate food. None of us would walk outside, dig in the dirt, pull up some earthworms, and eat them because it's not food, even though it probably wouldn't do us any harm. In other words, none of us would have earthworms on our shopping list when we go to the supermarket. Now, worms might be technically edible, but they're not biblically classified as food. It works the same way later on in the Bible. Unclean food is not even spoken of or classified as food. If it's unclean, even though it might technically be edible, it's not food. The term food is not applicable to those items God has declared as unclean. Okay. Note that in verses 4 and 5, that a different number of animals are listed as suitable for food and therefore clean. Only three of those animals are domesticated animals. And all the rest are wild game. Canaan, at this time, had an abundant supply of wild game. And Israelites would wind up eating a lot 
of deer and antelope and mountain goat and so on, all completely acceptable to God as food. Now, verse 6 gives us the general criteria of how to determine a clean animal that's not on that list of ten specific animals. It must both chew the cud and have a hoof that's separated into two. As verse 7 explains by means of example, camels, hares, and coney, an abundant and very common animal uh, in Canaan, still in Israel today, by the way, do chew the cud, but they don't have a separated hoof. So, therefore, they're not clean. They they can't be eaten because they're not food. Then it goes on to say that the reason that pigs are unclean for Israel is because while a pig does have a separated hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. Now, here's the perfect example of what I spoke of earlier. A cow is not necessarily more hygienic or healthier to eat than a pig, even though God classifies one as clean and the other not. This idea that pigs eat bad things, and therefore their meat is comparatively unhealthy, doesn't follow. Because many acceptable wild animals for Israel, even domestic animals like a goat, will eat anything. Goodness, even chickens will eat practically anything. You know, I'll never forget when I was a young boy living in the, in the farm communities and ranch lands of the Imperial Valley in California. When I was staying the weekend with a friend out on his family farm, we went out to gather some, some eggs from their chicken coop. Just in time to see a tiny mouse attempt to scurry across the dirt floor and uh, he never made it. He was instantly caught and eaten by a chicken with the other chickens trying to join in to that feast. And a chicken is biblically kosher food. Now further down is listed what kinds of sea creatures can be used as food and in general the rule is they must have fins and scales. So things like eels and shellfish and lobsters Oh. <laughs> and crab and squid and octopus and whale were not clean. Not meant for food. Some birds could be consumed as food as was demonstrated in Exodus out in the wilderness when God sent quail as meat for these loudly complaining Israelites. And since there is really no visible physical characteristic to easily distinguish and thereby classify one bird from another as clean or unclean, general characteristics aren't even given. Instead, we're given a specific listing of birds that are unclean. Presumably all the others are okay for food. Therefore, the ever-popular chicken has always been considered a good and clean food for Hebrews, and we'll find it today at the center of many meals during the Jewish holy days. Now, in practice, because there are hundreds and thousands of species of birds, 
The early Hebrew sages determined that certain behavioral characteristics of the birds listed here as unclean, that those could be ascertained and applied to the zillions of other non-listed birds that displayed similar behaviors. And by that way, they could determine what ought to be avoided. At the top of the list of unclean bird behaviors are those that eat dead flesh or are birds of prey. There are actually some other technical characteristics that rabbis have determined to make that make certain birds unclean. And we're not going to get into all that today because too much explanation would be required. But in general, birds that eat primarily grains, even that they might occasionally supplement them with, say, insects, are considered clean. Though a list of preferable birds was also created. Birds like chicken, quail, doves, partridges, ducks, geese, turkey, cornish hens, things like that are all standard fare for Jewish tables. Now, verse 19, at least in the English, seems like a little bit of double talk. Okay, It says that all winged swarming things are unclean. And then it turns around and says that some of them are clean. See, the key to understanding this paragraph is the word swarming. In Hebrew, sheretz. Sheretz refers to living creatures that swarm or crawl. Okay, insects or rats or frogs and certain sea creatures that walk on the sea bottom like lobsters and crabs among others. Okay, the only clean winged creatures that are recognized by the ancient Hebrews are certain winged insects such as particular varieties of locusts that leap, leap and jump using two powerful back legs. Therefore, ants, termites, grubs, and other similar creatures fall into the sheretz category, and thus they're forbidden to be classified as food. Well, then in verse 21, we get some prohibitions about when the clean animals can be eaten. And it centers on the manner in which those creatures died. If they died of a natural death, age, disease, even an injury, generally they're not to be eaten. And to kind of prove my point about the concept that it's not necessarily a matter of inherent hygiene or nutrition that makes one animal clean and another unclean. Here we have an instruction that even though God set apart people, the Israelites are prohibited from eating an otherwise clean animal, but it's died from natural causes. An animal that has died from natural causes can be given to the ger or sold to the nokri. Okay. This is not a case of God telling Israel to give the unsafe, unhealthy, or poisonous foods to non-Israelites. A ger is a non-Hebrew who lives among he, uh, Israel and has agreed to be a part of the Hebrew community and, for the most part, honors the God of the Hebrews and the laws of Moses. However, a ger is also a person 
Who's not gone so far as to join one of the Israelite tribes in an official capacity? A Nochri is one who does not dwell among the Hebrews. Rather, he dwells alongside the Hebrews outside their camp. He doesn't necessarily honor Yehovah. If a Hebrew's animal dies, the Hebrew is therefore to either offered as a gift to the ger, or is also just as free to sell it for money to the nokri. Now, although I'm drawn a fairly firm and rather easy to determine line between what a ger and a nokri is, in practice, the difference more represented social and economic status, a kind of class system prevalent in virtually all societies of that era. And, and this law not to eat an animal that died from natural causes, but others can, is explained in the sentence that immediately follows. It says, God says, For you are a people consecrated, or in some versions, holy, to the Lord your God. In other words, just as I have made a point of repeating, Israel is to follow different food laws than other people because food is a part of what separates them from the other cultures who do not bow down to the God of Israel. Now before we move on to the next section of Deuteronomy 14 that deals with different matters, I'd like to make a very brief comment about kosher eating as it pertains to the New Testament and to modern Christians now, it's, it's very clear in the scriptures themselves and in the Hebrew writings from that era and from the community documents of the Dead Sea Scrolls and a warehouse full of other Jewish documents from before and after the time of Christ that rabbis had so expanded and inflated the rules of kosher eating that Moses himself probably wouldn't have recognized them. If you were to look at the several Talmudic tractates in which diet is dealt with and then compare that to the book of Leviticus and also to Deuteronomy, which simplified these requirements, by the way, once Israel entered Canaan, you'd have to wonder where these brilliant Jewish sages got their ideas to demand these detailed procedures. Now, Messiah spoke loud and clear on this subject and said that these and other traditions had virtually replaced God's word. And that in the end, it was never a matter of what went into a person's mouth that rendered that person clean or impure in God's eyes, but what came out, meaning speech, that revealed the innermost thoughts of that person. This certainly was not Jesus abandoning the dietary laws of the Torah, for he himself said in Matthew 5.17-19 that not one jot, not one stroke of a pen would be removed from the law until when? Till heaven and earth passed away. Look outside, folks. There it is. And when we suppose to contrive doctrines that do the exact 
opposite of this. Supposedly, because of what Paul said, be on notice that while most of the church may not know any better, you and Torah class do. Okay, One of the sections of the New Testament in which an awful lot of mischief has been done by uninformed Christian scholars is in the book of Acts. When the sheet is let down from heavens and it's full of animals that are unclean for eating. I'll just quote Daniel L. Christensen, the editor of the World Biblical Commentary, a well-known conservative evangelical Christian writer. All right, on this subject. Peter's vision of a great sheet let down by four corners upon the earth that contained all manner of unclean animals was primarily a symbolic communication on the matter of including the Gentile man Cornelius to be along with the people of God. Let me expound upon that just a bit. You see, this vision of Peter's was a metaphor. It took what was perhaps the the primary, visible and known symbol of Judaism in that era, kosher eating, and used it as a metaphor for the many Gentile peoples of the world that God wanted included in his redemption plan. Judaism had developed two doctrines, however, that went well beyond scriptural intent. And these doctrines created an an insurmountable wall between Jews and Gentiles. First was that the Jews decided that Gentiles were not simply common, as opposed to holy people, but they were inherently unclean. And for a Jew to come into too close of a contact with a Gentile automatically defiled that Jew. Second was that the kosher dietary laws made it a practical impossibility that a Jew could ever eat food that a Gentile had merely prepared. In fact, to even eat at the table of a Gentile or with a Gentile present, no matter who prepared the food, made every Jew present ritually impure according to tradition. Now, of course, this was not only a popular, but very unbalanced and non-scriptural view. But also, it was more than just a little bit offensive to the Gentile believers. So by means of a divine vision, Peter saw that the Lord certainly did not hold with those man-made traditional beliefs and therefore told Peter that he most certainly could be in the company of Gentiles. Because Gentiles weren't inherently unclean. In time, Paul took that understanding to mean that when he was in the home of a Gentile, that if that Gentile offered him food that wasn't even strictly kosher, then Paul ought to eat that food. Because the need for the understanding and fellowship between Jewish and Gentile disciples of Jesus trumped the food laws for that situation. However, that didn't mean Paul ever thought those laws were abolished. Rather, this was but a demonstration of the principle of call vomer, 
the principle of light and heavy. Whereby when there is an obvious clash between two God principles, whereby both can't be obeyed simultaneously, then the one with the most weight, the heaviest one, is the one that must be chosen. Now the section on dietary law ends now, and laws concerning giving and fair dealing begin in Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Now this set of laws is going to continue on into Deuteronomy 15 and 16, and it's really just another aspect of the humanitarian focus Moses is expounding upon in his Sermon on the Mount from the mountains of Moab. Now it's an interesting phenomenon that if one looks closely at traditional Judaism, we see the greatest concern for social justice and fairness. And it is Deuteronomy that's the driver of this concern for them. Unfortunately, as as we who have belong to one or more of the 3,000 or so Christian denominations have observed, when we focus too tightly, too tightly, on one area of Scripture to the exclusion of another, our doctrines and traditions and behaviors become unbalanced. This is why we have this emergence of prosperity doctrines as the central tenets in some churches. Or we'll have others that believe handling poisonous snakes is a proof of true faith. Another more recent example of this unbalanced doctrinal Christianity is the so-called laughing church that believes if we'll just show more joy by laughing a lot, particularly during worship services, that we'll be healed of our diseases. More subtle are ones that make one of the Trinity more important than the others, whether it's the Holy Spirit for some or Jesus for others. Or perhaps whereby God the Father is strictly the Old Testament God, And therefore, he's nearly irrelevant today. And so on and so forth. There's just far too many far-out doctrines to even address in our lesson today. The Jews have historically become so overly focused on human social justice that they have allowed that concern to override both God's other commandments and just about as often common sense is sometimes taken a back seat. When we study in here Joshua and then Judges, we're going to get many examples of exactly that propensity towards unbalance that actually amounts to rather severe disobedience to God. We'll see that many of Israel's leaders in the Promised Land will allow their human desire for fairness and for compassion for foreigners to drive them to do the very things that the Lord has been making such a point of prohibiting, such as making treaties with the Canaanites or allowing pagan worship to continue within their land boundaries 
and even joining with some of the Canaanites in marriage so that they might show respect and tolerance and hopefully maybe even gain a peaceful coexistence with them. We find very similar things happening in Israel today. The Israeli government seems driven to self-destruction and cheered on, by the way, by the majority of American, by the American Jewish population, by doing everything it can to help and even advance their enemies who make it known in no uncertain terms that peace with Israel is an impossibility. I don't know if you read the papers in the last 24 hours, but Fatah had its what it calls this congressional meeting, and one of the things that came out of it was they will not speak to the Israelites about peace until Israel agrees to give up all of Jerusalem. Not just east, all of it. They will not come to the negotiating table. That's their latest demand. You know, it's one thing For the pagan world, the pagan world, to demand that Israel give up its land and sovereignty and even money for the lives of the Palestinians. It's quite another for the Jewish people and the Israeli government to advocate virtually the same thing. See, this is exactly the mentality that Moses' protege Joshua and his successors would foster. All in the name of their human ideal of social justice and of love and of mercy, they will do the exact things that Yehovah told them not to do with their foreign neighbors. My believing friends, listen to me. Okay, This principle applies not just to our Jewish brothers and sisters and not just to Israel. We, upon accepting the Jewish Messiah, whose very authority rests on the biblical covenants between God and Israel, we can't set aside God's laws and principles at our convenience and whim. We cannot count on love and mercy as the universal humanistic solvent that can just dissolve away the Lord's specific commandments not to mix our worship of Him with pagan worship practices, nor to celebrate pagan holy days, or mix those observances with ours, nor to tolerate the presence of pagan gods among us that some congregations are now essentially pronouncing that there is no difference between Yehovah and Allah breaks the commandment to worship no other gods. We are most definitely, of course, to strive for social justice, which we don't do nearly enough of. But never are we to do that in the context of men's philosophies and human relativism. The values and principles that the Lord has given to us are better than those of the world, even if the world doesn't agree with us. An annual tithe 
from the fruit of the land, we are told, was to be given to God. He was, after all, the owner of the land. And therefore, rightfully had a portion of the land's increase coming to him. But even more than ownership, it was he who gave the land its fertility and increase. The tithe, meaning a tenth, was to be brought to the central central sanctuary until King Solomon built a permanent temple to God in Jerusalem in the mid-900s B.C. The location of the sacred tent, the wilderness tabernacle, was moved a few times. Therefore, we won't see a specific place where the altar was located. It would have, however, spent probably the majority of its time resting in uh, Shiloh, Shiloh. Now, the purpose of the tithe, as ordained by God, was quite unusual for that era. A tithe, or something like it, was generally among the, ta- among the pagans just taxes paid to the king. Okay. But here that wasn't the case. The tithe, the tenth, was used to support the maintenance of the tabernacle and all of those who were assigned to serve at the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites. Because Israel was going to live spread out now, over thousand, over several thousand square miles in the land of Canaan, the distance that they would have to bring their produce to a central sanctuary as an offering was going to be an issue. In some cases, it would simply spoil during the long journey. In other cases, if it was animals, likely if you would get lost to wild animals or accidents along the way. And even more practically, if one possessed substantial fields and thus owed a substantial tithe, it would have taken a large amount of wagons and labor to transport all that produce to the tabernacle or to the temple. Therefore, in verse 24, we get the principle that produce can be exchanged for money. That is, a value of money could be assigned to that produce and the money then could be taken to the tabernacle and given in its place. This has even led to the Jewish tradition that money can be looked at as frozen labor. In other words, we work for wages and the money is representative of our labor time. Then we give of our money and it's essentially the same thing as giving of our labor. Then verse 27 is an admonition to be sure not to neglect the Levites that were living among them. Now here's the thing. The Levites were given 48 cities to live in throughout the 12 tribal territories. It was the duty of the tribes to support those Levites and their cities. But the Levites being spoken of here are separate from the priests. Recall that only certain families among the tribe of Levi could be priests. The remainder, which was the majority, were blue-collar workers, if you would, around the tabernacle. 
and they essentially worked for the priests. The scriptures generally makes this distinction by calling the priests, priests, Cohen, and by calling these non-priest, blue-collar workers, Levites. The priests receive most of their livelihoods from the portion of the ritual sacrifices that were due to them. The Levites generally did not receive a portion of the ritual sacrifices. So, it was from the tithes and offerings that they received their support. Now, an interesting curveball is thrown into the mix. Every three years, the annual tithes that were due weren't to be taken to the central sanctuary. Instead, they were to be stored in whatever town or village one belonged to. See, this was the core of the Hebrew welfare system. It was from these communal stores that the poor and the sick could draw food to survive. In addition, Levites were allowed to take food as well from this storehouse. And the storehouse also included money. Since as of now, produce could be exchanged for money and money given for tithes and offerings. Now please also notice that the food warehouse was made available to all disadvantaged folks. Widows, orphans, even foreigners. The principle expressed here is that at all times, the interests of the poor and the needy stand before the Lord. And he looks to his people above all others to fill that need among men. And while the needs of one's family and then his community of believers might have some priority, it can't be used as an excuse to ignore active charity wherever it's needed. We're going to start chapter 15 next week that further expands the measures that God commands to protect the poor and disabled.